I thank the Lord that I have the opportunity to preach his word to you among so many of you who know our Lord Jesus Christ, have come to believe he is the Savior of the world, and are now met together to learn more of him and worship him. It is truly a privilege. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 20, the entire chapter, and I'm going to actually read this chapter. It's fairly short. Um, But let us hear the word of the Lord to us uh, concerning his servant Abraham. It says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? I just have us notice there, this is very similar to Abraham's uh, request on behalf of Sodom, where he says, surely the judge of the whole earth would not kill the righteous with the wicked. Now Abimelech continues, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have, have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And then God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Open its truths to our minds in a way that only you can do by the work of your Spirit in us. 
This morning, many of our hearts are heavy as we remember and we know of the devastation taking place in Israel. I pray that this too would remind us that this world is a place of devastation, a place full of war and anger and hatred, but most especially against you and your kingdom. Father, we know that Psalm 2 is true and all the kingdoms of the world are conspiring against you and against the anointed Jesus Christ. We pray that those of us who profess your name here today would be those who truly profess your name and that would not join the unbelieving world in unbelief, but would rather stand and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory and to your honor. We thank you for your grace today that we can meet together here and hear your word preached. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts Apply it to our hearts, our Father, we pray, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's pretty small print, but here's what it says. As we've been going through the last several weeks, we have seen Abraham's joy as three people approach. One of them is the Lord himself. And Abraham is ecstatic at the presence of the Lord. And he, he quickly feeds this sojourner in his camp. The one who one day will tabernacle among his people has come to Abraham. And Abraham is overjoyed. And the Lord confirms to Abraham his promise, the son is coming. And then the next thing the Lord reveals is, and I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham prays, and he doesn't want God to destroy Sodom, specifically because he knows Lot's in Sodom, and he doesn't want Lot to die. Lot's his relative. And he prays for Sodom, and God says, you know what? If I find a few righteous people, I won't destroy Sodom. But he doesn't, and Sodom's destroyed. So Sodom is revealed as utterly wicked. We have the story of Lot. He's a little better But he doesn't want to leave Sodom, and he fights God, and he is revealed. Ultimately, last Sunday we see as someone who chooses his idols over God, his security over righteousness, and he is revealed as an utter failure. And now we get back to Abraham. Ah, whew, been through all this wickedness, and now we're into Abraham. Surely Abraham will be given a pass in this unrelenting critique of the human condition. But no, rather Abraham is compared unfavorably to a pagan king. A decent, but far from good pagan king. We might be tempted to be comforted by the reality that Abraham's a pretty bad sinner as well. Well, surely if Abraham can be saved, we can be saved. And this isn't wrong. But friends, we need some more comfort for our life and godliness than someone else's sin. We need the comfort that Abraham asked. You know, Abraham was not excluded when Jesus said, 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Abraham's a very wealthy man. Abraham's a very rich man. And this is why the disciples respond with, then who can be saved? You just excluded Abraham. Because when Jesus says a camel going through the eye of a needle, he means a camel going through an eye of a needle. Give it a billion years, give it 10 billion years. A camel in the presence of a needle is never going to make it through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. And you know what Jesus said to his disciples when they asked this question? He said, you know what? You're right. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, we should be asking when we read this passage, when we get to this point, after Sodom's condemned, after Lot's condemned, and now we see Abraham condemned, far from being comforted, we should be asking, who then can be saved? For God has proclaimed that he will in no wise clear the guilty. I'm going to give you a summary of this story. Honestly, friends, there's so much in this story that I could preach whole sermons on. Pieces that reveal different aspects of the Christian faith, different connections that are made throughout the Bible. And I'm just going to be honest, I'm not going to be able to cover all of those things, but I do want to make us aware of a few things that are revealed in this story. One, in this story versus the previous story of Abraham lying about Sarah being his sister, where there was a famine and he was forced into Egypt by the famine and out of fear of dying. In this story, Abraham is sojourning in the land of Canaan and it seems he's just going about his normal life. There's no external horrible circumstance that's affecting Abraham at this point. So he's just doing his life, going about his business. In fact, we could go to the book of James where it says to those of you who say we're going to go to such and such a place and do business there and make a profit, I tell you rather you should say uh, if the Lord wills, we will go here or there and do business. It seems that maybe Abraham's forgotten that that's the truth and he's just going about his business. Now, Abraham, while he's going about his business and his daily life, does encounter something that scares him. And in response to this fearful situation, he responds with, a, with sinning horrifically again for the second time in this uh, narrative of Abraham's life. By doing this sin, Abraham jeopardizes the birth of his son, the son that had been promised. Not from God's perspective, but from the human perspective, he jeopardizes it. So from his perspective, he should know this. God overcomes Abraham's folly. Oh, yay. Abimelech is painted as more morally aware than Abraham. What? Abimelech's ignorance does not absolve him from the duties of repentance. God doesn't say that he doesn't have to give the wife back. He doesn't say that he has to pay. Abimelech still has to pay up. His ignorance does not absolve him from guilt. Um, 
Sarah is declared as innocent and commended to the protection of her husband. This, again, is a, I believe is a rebuke of Abraham from the lips of Abimelech. I'm giving you a thousand pieces of silver. Next time, take care of your wife. And by the way, she's innocent, which is saying who's guilty? Abraham. Abraham's failures in this situation do not absolve him from the duties of his calling. God still calls him to intercede on behalf of Abimelech, even though he's the one that caused the sin. He is the first cause in this chain of events, and yet God still says his calling is to be the interceder for the nations. Can you see how many sermons? I mean, start pulling that all apart. There's a lot there, but I'm going to zero in on a couple of these points. Number one, Abraham encounters something that scares him. Number two, Abraham sins horrifically again. Number three, God overcomes Abraham's sin. That's it. That's what we're going to cover today. So what scared Abraham? What got him trembling in his boots? Well, he tells us. He says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. The truth of the matter is, Abraham says, I did it because I thought you all would kill me. Because Abraham thought they would all kill him, he dishonored God, lied, asked his wife to lie, endangered Sarah's honor, endangered the life of a relatively innocent king, endangered the life of his wife, endangered the existence of an entire nation, brought a plague on a household, and made excuses when confronted. It seems like Abimelech should have been afraid Abraham was going to kill him by his folly. And he ended up being afraid. You see, Abraham had another faith. He had a faith in God, yes, but he had another faith. We could say another rule. We could say he had another law. And we could say that that law was warring against the law of his mind, which truly did believe in God, and that's why he was justified by faith. You see, when we come to the story of Abraham, and what really hit me when I first read it was, why? Abraham, why? Do you, it really doesn't make sense, even within this, this narrative, because he's already done it once and learned God would take care of him. He's seen God caring for him throughout this narrative, and yet we should really be asking the question, how, Abraham, do you get from where you're rejoicing in the presence of God himself came to you to making a lie? in order to protect your own hide that endangered the life of your wife and a whole nation. Why? How does that happen? And we really should ask, because this should be confusing to us. It really should be confusing. And it is meant to be confusing, and I think it's meant for us to look at this and say, why? What happened in Abraham's heart and mind 
that allowed him to enter again into this sinful behavior that he's already been rebuked for once, has already suffered the consequences of once, and already should know better by now. Especially when at the end of the story, Abraham says the, one of the reasons he did it was it was just his policy. It's just the way I do things. I mean, as soon as God took me out of the land of Egypt, I told my wife, you need to lie about this and everything will be good for me. Remember, he was going about his daily life. It was, he was in his routine. And what you learn is that part of his routine was to protect himself in this manner. Is it part of your routine to protect yourself in a manner not in keeping with God's will? Do you regularly run into daily circumstances that tempt you to revert to that routine, even causing some of the same mistakes that you've already experienced many times in your life and receiving from those mistakes the consequences you've already received many times in your life? Is there a part of your routine that you have made a policy in order to protect yourself that regularly lands you in sin and the consequences that come with sin. If you do, you should be able to understand a little better what's going on in Abraham's heart and mind. He's operating based on another law, another reality that he perceives, and I would say another faith. He believes it at some level. Now, this is a diagram of the story thus far. I think this particularly is interesting because on one end we have the promise of Isaac coming to Abraham, being reiterated, and on the other side of these passages that we've just been studying, in the middle, we have Isaac come. So it's a nice bookend on each end is this promised seed on each end of these three stories. The sin of Sodom, the sin of Lot, the sin of Abraham. And on each side, the promised seed. And this is, I believe, with purpose. Like I said, I think it's leading us to, it's making, reiterating the promise, and it's leading us to desire the fulfillment of the promise. I'm just going to point that out. We'll come back to this later, because there's another place in the Bible that has a very similar uh, outline. Now, I want us to go to the book of Romans. Because I think we should be asking, how could Abraham do this? What happened in this that creates this inconsistency? And as I thought about this, I'm like, you know, Sodom's remarkably consistent. Even after they're taken away and they return to the land, they're still doing the same thing. And really, in fact, Lot is remarkably consistent. He chooses the easier path every time. But when we get to Abraham, there's this remarkable inconsistency in the way he acts. That should surprise us. The one who has faith seems inconsistent, while the unbelievers are consistently unbelieving. Now, we can argue about whether Lot was a believer or not believer. I think Lot, though, is Lot. We should learn from him as an individual, as a human being. But I think Lot is also a symbol of a group of people. So I think both of those things are true. I think we can talk about Lot as a person. 
And I think we can talk about Lot as a symbol. And so these people who regularly seem to act on the principle of unbelief are consistent. They go down the path. Whereas when we get to Abraham, there's inconsistency, there's up and downs, there's all over the place. And it's like, why does faith create this seeming inconsistency in the life of Abraham? I think this is what Paul's talking about. I'm, I, I'm going to actually turn over to Romans 7. I, I have part of it up here. Um, but pray right now and ask God to help your understanding to be opened. Because this, I believe, is powerful for the modern, shall we say, Western Christian in their day-to-day battle with sin. There's some really important truth here that we really got to understand. And I'm praying and hoping that we are enabled by the Spirit to do so this morning. In verse 13 of Romans 7, Paul, speaking of the law, he said that the law, when it came, stirred up sin in him. It made him act out more on his sin when he encountered the law. So he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You all might be thinking I'm being hard on Abraham. I think the way that this uh, narrative is written, it's meant to be very hard on Abraham. It's meant to show his sin is exceedingly sinful. And we shouldn't shy away from that. That's the point. For we know, he says, Apostle Paul, verse 14, Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. This is why I said in this story, we should not understand. It should not make sense. There should be this wonder at the inconsistency. And Paul says, the reason I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. This is strange in the economy of the world that someone would actually not do what they wanted to do. And he says, but I do the very thing I hate. It's worse. Not only do I not do what I want to do, I am doing what I hate doing. This is terrible. He says, what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now let's skip down. Verse 18. Let's go to 21. For I find, says the Apostle Paul, it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law. Now, one, everybody notice another law. Put it down, write it down. Law one. Another law. Waging war against the law of my mind. 
Write it down. Law number two. And making me captive to the law of sin. Law number three. Paul is referring to three separate laws here. Different things. They're not the same. The law that's in the flesh working against him is not the law of sin. It is bringing him into captivity to the law of sin. It's something different. Then he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Full stop. We'll stop there. This is what Paul, I believe, he's showing us. On one side, we have the law of sin. This is the sin nature still dwelling in us, the desire sin. On the other side, we have the law of God. This is the way God wants us to live. This is the way he commanded us to live. It's the way God created us to live. It's the way Abraham should have been living. In between, there are two other laws. The law of the mind and the law of the flesh. The law of the mind and the one who is full of faith, as Abraham was, wants to obey God, loves God, desires to do what God wants him to do, and desires not to do what God does not want him to do. Now, the law of the flesh, on the other hand, is afraid of death and is very resistant to suffering. Okay? Which is actually natural because actually the law of God, what we were created to be originally, didn't have suffering as part of the program. It's only because the law of sin that has taken effect that we now have to deal with death and suffering. But the desire of our original creation does not want to die and does not want to suffer. Yet, because the law of sin is in effect in the world, if I am going to obey the law of God, I must die and I must suffer. And so there's this war... The battle hits heads, not between the law of sin and the law of God, where we usually have the battle happening, but rather between the law of our mind, the faith that God has given us by his spirit, and the law of the flesh that resists suffering and death, even though the law of the mind, which is faith, says, Jesus Christ, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ says, lay down your life, take up your cross. Follow me. In other words, come die and suffer with me. And yet the law of our flesh says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm tired. I want to go to sleep. Even though Jesus is bleeding, sweating, blood, I need sleep. See, there's that battle going off. You know what Jesus says in that situation? Peter, Peter, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. That's where the battle was happening. It was between the faith that he had in Jesus Christ and the reality that his flesh, his body, his mind was resisting the suffering that Jesus was calling him into. And he lost that battle. And what do we see him do next? Deny Jesus three times. What happened to him? He was brought into subjection to the law of sin. All right. That's what happened to Abraham. That's why he says, I was afraid you all would kill me. He was afraid of dying. It was that simple. And based on his fear of death, he chose 
to become in bondage to his principle of sin once again and therefore acted on that sin. And therefore we have an inconsistency. We have inconsistency in his life because there's a battle in his life. And sometimes one side's winning and sometimes the other side's winning because there's a battle. And so we have an explanation. Even though we're not told what Abraham's exactly thinking and that this battle's going on, we can see the effects of the battle and him giving in to the fear that his flesh had of dying and therefore going into sin. Now, Paul ended this very confusing passage with many laws and backs and forths and I want to, I do not, I wish I would, I do not. And there's been a lot of argument within Christian circles about whether Paul's talking about before he was saved, whether Paul is presenting a prototype human being that he's just using to mold into some point, or whether he's talking about his normal experience after he's saved. And I would like to offer a fourth option, and that this, what we read in Romans 7 here, is an excerpt from Paul's journal. I, I, not literally, maybe. But he's writing down an experience, or many times he's experienced this confusion, fighting, ah, ah, and he's writing it down. I just, oh, why is it this way in me? Why is it this way in me? I find no power to overcome in these things. And he ends this with this guttural cry. Oh, wretched man I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And you know what so many Christians do? They'd be like, yeah, Paul, we understand. We get it, man. We're there all the time. I think Paul would weep if he knew that was the normal way that we apply that passage. Because the next thing he says to us is, I thank my God through the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore I shall no longer live according to the law. With the flesh, I will live according to the law of the flesh, but with my mind, I will live according to the law of God. And then we go into Romans 8, and he tells us how the flesh can be overcome by the power that is in our experience through the mind, the desire for God and engaging with God. So that the flesh, I no longer live in the flesh, but in the power of the Son of God who gave himself for me. Paul is saying he is no longer going to simply accept the fact that his flesh is going to have power in his life. But he is going to begin to understand and begin to act upon the principles that are at work in him, the principles of faith that God has put in him. Notice this. He says, for those who live in Romans chapter 8, 
Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul did not want us simply to say, with my flesh I serve sin. He wanted us to say, with my mind I will serve God, and by God's power I will put to death the works of the flesh. That's the Paul, that's what he's saying. He's not saying, spend the rest of your Christian life screaming at the sky, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Only people that don't have a Savior have to do that every single day of their life. That's what Martin Luther had to do every single day of his life while he was trying to work for his salvation, screaming at the sky, throwing chairs, upset. That's all he had because he hadn't realized yet that he had a Savior. Notice this. This is the other place we see a very similar, and if you would like to talk to me about this, I know there's a lot more in these passages. I'm picking out one string, okay? This is a tapestry that Paul wrote. It's a beautiful tapestry. I'm I'm just going to pull out one string in this tapestry. Paul in Romans 1 he begins by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then he describes a world without God. And I think this corresponds to Sodom. I mean, it's the same sin patterns. It's the same kind of attitudes as we see in Sodom. And he uses Sodom as, like I said, a symbol, a a heading over the unbelieving world. But then Romans 2 goes to the Jew. And it points at the Jew and it says, do you think you're better than them? And he says, no, you're not. You're not better than them at all. Just like them, you're under condemnation. And do you know what's interesting? When we get to chapter 4, do you know who Paul brings up? Abraham. And do you know what he brings up about Abraham? That he was justified by faith as an ungodly man. Do you see what I did there? I changed this color because here the gospel, which Paul is going to get to in more detail as he moves forward in this book, but reiterates in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, works its way back into where Abraham is. And no longer is Abraham in that law of sin category, but he's in this law of life category through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what we need to begin to understand. It's the same pattern, like I said, one string. I'm not going to miss the tapestry. I can't tell you the whole tapestry. I'm making a point here. So then let's read this again. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, man, we should be more excited about that. 
Notice what uh, the writer of Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, through the suffering of the death of the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, not leave, all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. What slavery? Slavery to sin. Why were they subject? Because of the fear of death. Who delivers them? Jesus. You know, Abraham had not fully understood yet the salvation that God had given him. And in this story, as we're heading into the birth of Isaac, he is shown as not understanding. But you know, heading out from Isaac, what Abraham's doing? He's taking his son, his only son, Isaac, up a mountain to sacrifice him because he believes so strongly in God. He believes God can even resurrect the dead. Do you think Abraham at that point, knowing that God was powerful enough to resurrect the dead, was really afraid of dying anymore? He had learned something about God and it empowered his faith. That he took action that is unbelievable. And when did it happen? After the seed came. This is also in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Apostle John says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. It has to do with death. It has to do with suffering. We're afraid of those things, but we're most afraid of punishment. He says, whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love, has not matured in love. The power of God in application in this land, God rules. In the mind of the believer who has set their mind on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God, at the right hand of power, God rules in that land. In this land where this law of flesh is ruling, we know the flesh rules. If I'm in that space, the flesh rules and therefore death rules. I want to ask some questions about this story. Who's the only one in this story who's perfect and in control of this story? Who's the only truly just one? Who controls the narrative? Who is mighty and unstoppable? Even death is his servant. God was able to say to Abimelech, if you don't return Abraham's wife, I will kill you. Death is at my beck and call. And you know what Abimelech said? You're right. The wife's going back, and a lot of stuff, and I'll let him stay. You know, we have a deep faith. If we want to use that word, it seems sacrilegious, but we have a deep faith in the power of death. Death scares us. 
We have a powerful faith in the power of sin. Oh, sin, I'm never going to overcome it. It's going to overcome me. It's got me. I can't get out. We have an unshakable faith in our own perceptions. I see the world. I see the way it is. God can say whatever he wants, but I see reality. Abraham was saying that. I know these people don't fear God, and I know they're going to kill me. He believed it. And you know what? Abimelech didn't say, you're wrong. Seems like Abimelech was kind of like, maybe. But who stepped in here? God stepped into the story. He would have stepped in in any case because he had promised the son was coming. And Abraham being killed and his wife being killed and his people being killed was not in keeping with God keeping his promise. He would have taken care of him. We have faith. We trust implicitly every day of our lives. And this faith fills us with fear. And this fear brings us under the slavery of sin as it did with Abraham. Again, friends, this narrative is meant to lead us to a place. We're going into the birth of Isaac. And Isaac is representative of Jesus Christ. And this whole narrative from Sodom to Lot to Abraham is meant to put us in a place where we are asking, really asking, no, indeed, begging, pleading. Who is worthy? Is anyone able to deliver? We have all gone astray, everyone in their own way. We should be, we should be asking this question at this point. We're filled with our fears. We're filled with a knowledge of the way the world works under sin. But do we know the way our God works? And more importantly, do we know the power he has to act? Father, impress on our hearts the reality of Jesus Christ. Would you all turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53? Would we all stand? We are in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are in the presence of Jesus Christ in Nazareth, and we should be standing amazed because who is worthy? Who can overcome this power in us, this fear of death, the power of sin? I present to you our Lord Jesus Christ, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their face, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord. Listen to this, friends. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. When we say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the one you believe in, the one who poured himself out unto death and is now counted among the strongest. And he's the only one that can save you. My application today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not as some extra part of your life, but as your life. And don't step back from him. Do not step back from your weakness. Don't step back from any of that, but step towards the Lord Jesus Christ with it all. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.